Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. This episode of the JSW Radio Hour is the second installment in a series of features that are researched, produced, and narrated by Patricia Schwartz, a graduate student in the University of Arizona School of Geography, Development, and Environment, and with the help of Radio Hour producer and editor, Carlos Quintero. Schwartz turns here to the topic of rivers, and in particular rivers that flow through some of the most arid lands of the U.S. West, and that, in one way or another, are shaped by and shaping of human communities. And really, there's not a surface flow in the desert west that fails to meet this most basic description. The conversation you're about to hear is wide-ranging and deep, a weave of important regional voices on the matter of humans' diverse engagement with water, and of course vice versa, and Schwartz's own thoughts. We hope you enjoy this episode of the JSW Radio Hour, and please check back with us soon for another installment. I think I started looking into rivers because the the life they bring to the desert and the life they bring to humans and their environment. And remembering my mom uh, on the Rio Sonora that used to cross Hermosillo. Right now, the Rio Sonora is, uh, is a slab of concrete to take flood water away from the city. But if you go farther north in Ures, there is a Puente Gavilán. And so I was with my mom, I think as a teenager, we had our feet wet on the water, looking at the river. And my mom said on her wonderful voice, y me dijo, mira, mijito, ya oíste el agua. Look, my son, have you hear the water? Yes, mom, I, I'm, I'm listening to the water. Yeah, but are you really listening? Don't you think the river is happy going towards the ocean, she said. The happiness of the river going to the ocean. That phrase really stayed with me. So I like to say that my work with water is to bring the happiness of rivers back. It's kind of a meditative way of, of seeing the river. And we can sit there and the water moves. It makes sounds. Things go floating through it, a leaf, a little twig, a branch. And, and it's amazing. It's amazing to experience that, a river flowing and listen to that happiness. That happiness had been fragmented at some point. So that's the beauty of, for me, of river restoration. You just heard from Joaquin Murieta Saldivar, a cultural anthropologist, international educator, and general water whisperer. He's worked on border crossing rivers for decades under the same dream. Speaking with him, this episode formed for me as somewhat of a personal challenge to have a conversation about water in the West that for once diverges from the bleak and makes some space for humble possibilities. Within this era of disheartening news delivered at breakneck speeds, happiness can start to feel like a frivolous goal, even a selfish one. Though it is becoming increasingly difficult to find and write about optimism within studies of the environment, perhaps the cultivation of joy is an act not of delusion, but of revolution.
This is a story about learning and relearning a familiar landscape, and about seeing my own, our own, unmistakable place within it. I found that a conversation about urban rivers evoked a conversation about the most elemental aspects of modern community. It compels us to reimagine the nature of cities, much-needed collective reflections on the roles of beauty and play and sewage and bureaucracy, and yes, of happiness in what we are continually constructing together. As they stand now, many of our rivers tell a common tale. Another unavoidable casualty in the conquest of the West. The causes we know all too well. Almost 70% of Arizona's water supply is dedicated to irrigating the state's farmland. But it's still not enough. We've got a huge problem. We are not going to get even 30% of normal runoff. You realize that you have to go back perhaps centuries, centuries to find a drought of this kind of magnitude. point to climate change is a main reason. A warming environment means less snowpack and less water in the river. They project even greater losses over the next 50 to 100 years. The task of urban river restoration is not necessarily to try to circumvent these pressures, but to face their realities with ambition and adaptability. Another seasoned and still hopeful restoration expert in the borderlands, stream ecologist Mark Briggs, has spent his career repairing relationships at the nexus of hydrology and humanity. He and Dr. Murieta can help guide us through the basics in the context of the arid West. From an ecologic, you know, purely ecologic standpoint, restoration means taking the river back to before its uh, damaged state. But these days we use a much broader definition and which is based on the location, the partners, the people involved, uh, you know, what it is that they want to see the river look like. Taking a river back to its pre-European, I guess, state is often unrealistic. And really the key to restoration is developing a restoration objective that benefits society, but it's something that actually can be achieved and maintained. What we try to do is try to bring together societal needs, needs of communities and citizens that live by the river, along with those of native species. So it's a kind of an amalgam. It's really critical to have restoration objectives. We can either wait until things get so bad that we have no choice, and then we'll be in a desperate situation and no one wants to be in a desperate situation. Or hopefully we can get out ahead of this and begin to see strategies that that will improve the flexibility of water management. The plight of urban rivers in particular has been a portent of environmental degradation writ large, usually one of the first ecosystems to fold under pressures of extraction and development. In many cases, we cease to recognize our rivers once they go regularly dry on the surface. If not for the roadside signs posted on bridges, these washed-out arteries could be confused with any other stretch of dusty desert. Restoration practitioners work to exhume what remains of the rivers, still flowing underground, bringing them to light first through shared vision. Thinking pragmatically about river restoration within our cities begs a reconsideration of the ideal of restoration, as something that happens in so-called nature, and further, of nature itself, as I, like many, learned to conceptualize it, an untouched, ethereal state that exists far out there, away from the cities, away from us. This imagined separation has proven a dangerous fallacy. 
Despite our deepest urban delusions, we are not alienated nor excused from participation in nature. All humans and the built environments we inhabit are active parts of an ecosystem, linked in shared cycles of nutrient and energy flow, and governed by its composite organization, just like everything else. As with any part of the system, human behaviors can be a force that contributes to its gradual degradation, or one that promotes stability, regeneration, and life. The river, for me, is in nowhere homes, is in nowhere gardens, is in nowhere cleaning the car, is in nowhere lawns. We're still pumping water, but we are enjoying that water. And the implication of that is that the water table is way down. Well, are the priorities changing so the water table is coming up? Um, I go back to my mom. <laughs> and bringing the happiness of river back, that brings additional hope to our communities. Imagine how many trees can a river plant if the Santa Cruz River was flowing, imagine how many trees can that river plant from San Javier to Marana. We can never do that, but the river can actually do it. Riparian regions are among the most complex and biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. In the deserts of the North American West, something like 85% of creatures depend directly on local rivers for at least one phase of their life cycle, humans very much included. All environments are indeed built by a combination of forces. We cannot claim total control nor credit for the environments we consider fabricated, apart from their organic building blocks and the ever-evolving ground on which they are precariously perched. Standing in a city, it's easy to think of nature as something you need to pack up and drive to. Consider the highway you'd take to get there. In Tucson, the I-10 highway, constructed in the 1950s, runs directly parallel to the Santa Cruz River, with which humans have coincided for thousands of years. We think of them as worlds apart, but they are remarkably similar in form and function. Both are constantly moving resources, creating connections, and reshaping the lives around them. Where the river and its ecosystems and where the hydrology begins and ends, like you can't dissect them. They're completely integrated. You know, the riparian biota that we find along streams can only be found there. I mean, they're dependent on the river hydrology. That said, certainly biota also affects the stream. You have a dense stand of willows, for example, like coyote willows. They will certainly, you know, anchor sediment. They will provide habitat. When you are in a river and the water is flowing by your ankles, it is also the sediment that's moving and is a critical to stream conditions. For example, you have a dam that blocks all the sediment. You will find reaches downstream of dams as a result where the river is incised, leaving once active floodplains now abandoned above the bed of the channel. A starved river is pretty easy to spot. Among the estimated 98% of total river area in the U.S. now affected by dams. But activities even hundreds of miles away from the river can have the opposite effect. Clearing forests for agriculture and livestock, wildfires or other prescribed burns, all disturb soils on the highest areas of the watershed. As water flows downhill, it carries the fallout of this erosion, sometimes burying fertile floodplains and blocking river flows with what is called legacy sediment. 
legacy of the Anthropocene. You got to begin with understanding why the river is in bad shape, what the drivers of decline are, and trying to address them directly. Your restoration efforts should not be focused just on stream quarter. You're looking at the upland areas, you're looking at tributaries and uh, addressing impacts that are well outside the stream corridor. Living alongside it, I myself have never seen the whole of the Santa Cruz River, the only river to cross the U.S.-Mexico border twice, flow for more than a couple of weeks in the rainy season. While it was small enough to evade the dams emblematic of most of the West, the Santa Cruz has fallen to vigorous groundwater pumping largely for the growth of nearby cities like Tucson and Ambos Nogales. Still, this river has gained attention as a case study in urban restoration. Some portions have been resaturated and restored, in fact, using the waste generated by the same cities that depleted it. I promised we'd talk about sewage. Since the 1970s, NGOs, county, and city governments have invested in a number of wastewater reclamation facilities to handle urban discharge and serendipitously make use of treated effluent to restore rivers. Effluent has become more and more of a prominent feature in the water plan of many cities. Due to its unglamorous origins, it is sometimes controversial, but it finds use for millions of gallons of water that is otherwise, as the name implies, wasted. We have done a pretty good job in destroying many of the native ecosystems and the effluent can be a huge component of reestablishing those cottonwood and willow forests and mesquite that are critical for birds and a variety of other native species. The Santa Cruz restoration projects have made impressive progress in reestablishing species diversity and population numbers, which has had ripple effects. Rivers in good condition bring us together. So when you visit a river that, that has flow, that's in fairly good shape, you'll encounter all elements of uh, human society. When a river is damaged and flow has been lost, none of these elements will be there. They, they are also lost. The opportunities for society to come together to share will be lost. With regard to the Santa Cruz, we have people flocking to the river, drawing us all together. That, to me, cannot be anything but a positive. The ample majority of the city-dwelling kids in an educational program around the new effluent restoration sites in 2014 had never before seen a flowing river. With the majority of all people living in cities, neglecting urban rivers would mean that most of the world's population would be deprived of their beauty and benefits. And even within cities, the legacies of systematic disinvestment in communities of color and lower-income populations map demonstrably onto river degradation. Compared to others, these stretches of rivers face concentrated occurrences of dump sites and pollution, overdrafting and infrastructural neglect. Right now, you can see poverty from Google Maps. The investment needs to happen in areas where it is more needed. How can we start building natural cities, cities that we can actually have? So when it rains in nature, for the most part, 50% of the water infiltrates. That's why rivers flow, because we reach the shallow infiltration area. What happens when we put a city on top of nature? And remember, all the cities are on top of nature. 55% <laughs> of the rain is the water that we see on the streets. The water that we see on sidewalks, the water that hits the rooftops, 
and all that water, for the most part, it just evaporates because it's too much volume and too much speed. So the water that we did infiltrate right here in our urban environments is flowing away. Well, can we come back to the natural numbers of infiltrating 50% of water? The rainwater that hits the city of Tucson is enough water to provide for all the needs of the city. Uh, so how can we get smarter about using rainwater, for example? For me, I see a lot of opportunities with green infrastructure because water is there and space might be there. Can we create rain parks in sectors of the city where they need it that would benefit uh, the infiltration of water, the shade, heat island component, but also that will help us in start to restore the aquifer. And by restoring the aquifers, we can also start restoring some of the streams that we used to have here in the Sonoran Desert. When treated wastewater is accompanied by passive management strategies throughout the city, the benefits begin to multiply. This is critical, as swift solutions are needed for intensifying problems. Despite resource limitations, many of the fastest-growing cities in the U.S. are concentrated in the Southwest. Parallel cities in northern Mexico show similar growth rates. At the same time, we've seen the widespread commercialization of public space within those cities. With growth, integral parts of the public domain become gentrified private development, effectively shrinking the city for most residents, and especially in those communities already lacking safe outdoor areas. Investment instead in rivers and green spaces yields free and guaranteed returns that belong to everyone. Assets unrestricted by neighborhood access or the threat of criminalized loitering. What's more, the strategies to get there are also accessible at multiple scales. Right now, Tucson, for example, and congratulations to the Tucsonians because right now we're using 80 gallons per person a day. 10 years ago, it was 95 gallons per person a day. Uh, and so we're doing better in terms of water consumption. Then again, we have more population, but still we're using less water overall. Uh, we have high efficiency toilets, for example. We have aerators in the kitchen, sinks and bathtub sinks. Some of us have water harvesting. So all those things count. So right now we're 80 gallons. Well, can we go lower? I like to say 40 is the new 80. <laughs> That's a word goal. It can be easy, but it's going to take time. And some of us are already close to that. There are choices. There are options that the regular citizen can actually do. So that way we're diminishing the demand of aquifer water. It's very interesting to compare different tools, different policies, different approaches in urban environments as well as in rural environments. So one day I can be working with a rancher in Mexico or in the US, and next day I can be working with a household here in Tucson or in Mexico talking about the health of the same watershed. Different scales, but they're doing the same thing. And it's in two different countries. Sometimes people don't see the connections, but they're so connected. It doesn't matter if you are conservative or a progressive is it's, it's the component of water. To see it in action and to see a regular citizen, whether in rural or in urban environments, talk about how a little trickle of rainwater changed their life. That's minuscule at the home level, 
but that's huge at the human and universal level because <laughs> you're talking about the soul. Uh, but also you're talking about imagine each home on these urban environments doing that. The more land managers that you can bring to the table, the more citizens that you can bring to the table. You know, it is such an opportunity when you try to look at the stretch of the river that is much larger than you had originally started with. Cobble together something that is meaningful and long-term viable and important to them. The more you're going to be able to do with regard to pushing the restoration needle. Restoration is not just about heading backwards on the same path. Getting to restoration as a renewed relationship with a river requires experimentation, adaptation, and restructuring of the systems that damaged it. If we think of the whole system of a river, can we follow the same pattern of growth, of development? Can we imitate the river in our social systems that we have created? I like to think in very simple terms. Think of a watershed, for example. Water flows from top to bottom. Well, can we make a river flow from top to bottom? That's the natural way of doing things. And yes, there is a lot of restrictions, particularly by national settings. Whether it's federal, state, or municipal governments, laws sometimes have complications. But those are laws that we humans have created. Therefore, we can change them. It doesn't need to be the way we've been doing. Sometimes you just need to take action. We need to follow the law? No. <laughs> we need to challenge the law and we need to change the law. The government doesn't know at all. I mean, we need to help them. And that's what some of the leaders of what Palestine are doing or did and something that it was illegal 12, 15 years ago. And it's not that easy. It takes a lot of meetings. It takes a lot of beer, a lot of back and forth. But slowly things starting to change. The state policy that we're working on or federal policies that we're also working on by demonstrating that things can change and things can work. That's my way of doing policy. <laughs> Let's just do it. The first step that would really make a difference is to kind of be the voice, the chispa, the, the spark that forms a team to try to bring people's attention to the damaged state of the river and potentially what can be done to bring it back, but more importantly, why it's important. You know, if you're just one person, you know, start talking to your friends and family because you're going to need a team to restore a river. You can't do it by yourself. You know, you look at the Santa Cruz and particularly if you have pictures of what it was like before or descriptions. It can be completely overwhelming. You know, take small steps at a time. Think small, start in your backyard if that's appropriate, but then always have your mind on what potentially could be a long-term goal, how potentially you can influence the person that lives or, or manages the land next door, or upstream, downstream, that kind of thing. Good things can take place in a relatively short amount of time, and particularly when a lot of good people become involved. So get people together, and the next thing you know, you'll have a restored river. Once initiated, river restoration projects tend to gain momentum. The revival of a forgotten riverbed is exciting. Watching two coyotes sunning on the banks of the Santa Cruz a few weeks ago, with their tiny pups wrestling and splashing among the tall grass on the river bottom, was probably one of the most thrilling events of my summer of quarantine. Real progress is made when the river becomes a familiar fixture of the morning commute. 
the habitual site for an evening stroll, when it finds its natural niche within the everyday rhythm of the city, when everyone can get to know and take ownership of it. We all agree that it is more vital than ever to rally around natural spaces, before they are lost. The generations now growing up in cities might never get the chance if they don't first see it demonstrated in a place they have regular contact with, their own backyards. I mean, just looking at the southwestern U.S. and northern Mexico, this immediate border area, and it's just key that we learn from each other. And I think what rivers provide humanity is not just a key ingredient for our our economic and spiritual well-being, but a binding essential ingredient for our sustainable future on this planet. It is one of the key ecosystems that deserves our attention. It's proven that restoration can have long-term public health and environmental benefits, but it also supports many of the values we often claim make us human. Why shouldn't beauty, tranquility, and amusement be thought of as human rights? Why don't we prioritize cultivating them in our city spaces? Why don't we get more serious about happiness? Right now, I'm looking at a tiny little river I created in my front yard. And I'm not a hippie. I'm just a regular citizen. And I take showers and all that stuff. (laughs) Uh, I'm harvesting water from the street. To see the water flowing, I even start playing in my little river that I have in front of my house. Every home deserves to have a little river. That little river is infiltrating water. I'm not using drinking water to irrigate native plants that are flowering all year round. So imagine every home having rain gardens, every street being a green street, every park having a rain park. Once people' behavior is connected to nature from home, oh my God, you can do so many things. You can restore rivers, actually. (laughs) I'll admit, I've been skeptical about the feasibility and longevity of restoration efforts. I'll even admit that within the current socio-political climate, I often still am. Taking on extractive industries and mobilizing a lethargic bureaucracy are daunting tasks. But restoration is already real. You can go see it in at least three places of the Santa Cruz and thousands of others throughout the North American West. Allowing yourself the time to enjoy it? That's a radical step. The goal of restoration I hadn't considered before is the formation of a symbiotic relationship between the river and the city, of holding the happiness of both as equal aims and both as determinants in the fate of the other. Restoring rivers is restoring humanity, and the process is being done and undone in every action, whether we choose to recognize it or not. A lot of big ideas were thrown around in this episode. But restoration really is incremental and personal. We'll need more than just wastewater to overcome our challenges. Check out the show notes for some resources and more information. How to make your own little river like Joaquin's, or just to spend some time thinking about the way water moves through your life.